The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. And I would say there is no book of the Bible that flies in such a lofty way and looks over the grandeur of the saving work of God as does the book of Ephesians. It's densely packed with truth. So densely packed that just a handful of verses, like you just heard read for us a moment ago, is filled, jam-packed with more concepts than we could get through in a couple of weeks of preaching. We could ponder them for days and days and still not plumb the depths. Specifically, at the very beginning of this epistle, Paul leads the Ephesian Christians in a celebration of worship to Almighty God on an infinitely deep topic. And that topic is God's eternal election, His choosing of the saints from before the world began. So difficult is this idea to grasp that many have debated these ideas back and forth with tremendous passion, even occasionally with some unholy intensity. Arguments have started over the ideas that I'm going to share with you today. Many Christians, knowing this, have shrunk back from thinking about them at all. Think it would be better to not bring it up. It would be better to not talk about election or God choosing or any of these kinds of things. Election and predestination are ideas that we should not bring up. We can't understand them. They're just going to lead to arguments anyway. And so they just hold back. And they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Because they want to steer clear from controversy, they actually might even be proud of themselves for blunting or turning away from these things and saying, I'm not going to talk about that, etc. Because they are, they think in a strange way, maintaining unity in the bond of peace. (laughs) Quoting the same book that we're studying today. And they think it's better to do it that way. But in doing so, they forget that God intended for us to know these things. That God actually has told us about this in Scripture. Not just here in Ephesians, but in many places. God intended to give us this Scripture. He wanted us to read it. He wanted us to ponder it, to meditate over it, and allow it to transform us. It is a sin for us, therefore, to fail to ponder these things. To shrink back from the title deed of our full inheritance that we have in Scripture here in Ephesians 1. It would be a sin for me as a pastor to skip it or avoid it or deal with it lightly or gloss over it. To refuse to lead FBC in a thorough contemplation of Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. He didn't do that with these same Ephesians. He says in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders and verse 20, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And then a few verses later he said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So also it's not right for us as individual Christians, or certainly not for me as a pastor, to shrink back from Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. But what is the right approach that we should take as we engage these deep ideas? Well, I'm going to lean on Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wealth Welsh preacher in the 20th century who gives us some basic rules of the road as we approach this week election and the next week, God willing, predestination. 
So, some preliminary comments. First, we should not come with an argumentative spirit, loyal to one faction or party or another. Uh, We should never come to this topic with heat or dogmatism. Secondly, we uh, do come with a spirit of utmost reverence and a sense of profound worship about these things. Almost as if we should come on bended knees, having taken off our shoes for the ground on which we are as holy ground. Thirdly, we should come as though God himself were speaking these words to us, telling us deep and mysterious things that we would have no other way of knowing. Fourth, we should come, said Lloyd-Jones, based on our experience as Christians, knowing that the overwhelming majority of people in the world in which we live do not believe any of these things at all. Do not believe any aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chose to sleep in today rather than go to a place of worship. It was very easy for me to make that left-hand turn on 15501 this morning. Much easier than it will be tomorrow morning. Where are all the people? They haven't moved, I don't think. But they're not choosing to come to worship. Why, Why then am I choosing to come to worship? Why am I here today? You could ask the same thing about yourself. Why do you believe the gospel? Why do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Why are you hoping in Christ for a full forgiveness of your sins and to spend eternity in heaven? Why has this happened to you and not to all of them? All your co-workers and fellow students and people that you shop with at the malls. Why you? 1 Corinthians 2 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the, the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Well, why can you understand them? How did this happen to you? I think if you search your own hearts, look at your own experience, you will know that God by his sovereign grace has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. And he has by his sovereign grace brought you into the kingdom of the beloved son. And to God be the glory for that. God took out your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh. That's what happened. Fifthly, we come recognizing that eternal election is an infinite mystery. Something that soars well beyond human ability to fully comprehend. doesn't matter how smart you are, how learned you are, how many scriptures you've studied, or how many books of theology you've read. This is infinite mystery. No one can fully explain it. No one can fully comprehend it. It's a heavenly doctrine. And in that way, we would say no human being would ever have concocted it. Who would have come up with it? The idea that God chose us before the creation of the world, by name, to be his children. A few weeks ago in Isaiah 55, we heard these words. I think they're helpful now. God says this to the human race, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think we can take that as we venture into study about eternal election. God actually rebukes the argumentative human mind and the argumentation that humans tend to do in this topic. In Romans chapter 9, he says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Who are we to argue if God has told us that he has done this? Well, those are some preliminary rules of the road. I think they're helpful. I tend to ask another question, just maybe it's too utilitarian, but it's kind of the way I am. What benefit comes from us studying this? What do we get out of this? All scriptures, God, breathing, profitable. What's the profit here? 
Well, I think we get two profits from studying eternal election and predestination, which we'll cover next week. First, and this is really, really useful, you get humility. This doctrine has tremendous power to humble the arrogant human heart, to lay it low, to level it completely. Actually, I think every aspect of our salvation does that, the more you meditate on it. And it's very necessary for us to be humbled. We are so arrogant. And to know that we were chosen before the creation of the world, completely apart from anything positive that God saw in us, is humbling. Second benefit that we get here is we get security. We get assurance. We get the security of knowing that we are going to be finally saved in the end. We are going to be in glorious resurrection bodies in a resurrected world and nothing, no power in heaven or earth or under the earth can stop it. And that gives me assurance and confidence as I battle my own sins day after day. It gives me assurance. Jesus put it this way in John 6. All that the Father gives me, that's the elect, will come to me. 100% of them. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, that's the elect, I shall lose none, but raise them up on the final day. My goodness, if you can read those and not end up with a surge of assurance, just read it again. (laughs) Read it again. Because look at how much assurance comes from the doctrine of election. God will never lose any of his elect, but will most certainly raise them up on the final day. And therefore, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will most certainly carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That gives us assurance. All right, well, those are just some preliminary comments. Now let's look at the text, Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to see it all in the organizing rubric of election. We could do it a lot of different ways, but I'm going to just see it through that lens today. And that is the idea of election. We're going to start with Paul and the Ephesian saints as trophies of God's sovereign election. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is most certainly an eternal trophy of God's sovereign election. Amen? Uh, Perhaps I would say there's no one I know of in redemptive history so perfectly positioned to write this epistle as the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is certainly and clearly a trophy of God's great grace. And Paul makes an initial assertion here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God the Father exerted his sovereign will in Paul's life and changed him forever. And we know the story about Paul because it's been so thoroughly covered in the New Testament. How in Galatians 1, Paul says, you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So Paul was a very zealous, Christ-hating, church-hating Jew. 1 Timothy 1.13, he says this about himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. 
Now, the circumstances of Paul's conversion are told three times, no less than three times in the book of Acts, so it's very important. Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he obtained letters from the Sanhedrin to go to synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any that belonged to those synagogues who followed Christianity, he could arrest them and drag them back for trial to the Sanhedrin. That's how much he hated Jesus. And he was filled with it, breathing these things out. He was more zealous than ever before, excited about his trip to Damascus. He woke up that morning a Christ-hating persecutor of the church. And he went to bed that night loving Jesus and wanting to build the church. How did that happen? It's a sovereign grace of God. There's no other explanation. And I would say this as Paul would say. If God can convert me, he can convert anyone, anytime. By sovereign grace. So he's on the road and he hears a voice from heaven and sees a blinding light. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus. Oh, those three words shattered his old way of life. I think that was the moment of conversion for him. I just think that's when the light shone in his heart. I am Jesus. Jesus, this, this radiant, majestically glorious, resurrected God of heaven and earth. I am Jesus, the very one that you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. That's the way a king talks. And one of the things he must do was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was God's will for his life. And so he began his ministry there. That was his calling. So Paul is clearly a trophy of God's electing grace. But so were the Ephesian saints. They also were trophies. Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. Now the word saints, we should not understand. I was raised Roman Catholic. I went to St. Anselm and St. Jeremiah Church, etc. And that's the way they used the word saint. We would understand uh, the word differently in the New Testament. A saint is a believer in Christ, a genuine Christian. That's all. Just somebody who's been regenerated, transformed by the grace of God. The word just means set apart as God's holy possession. That's what we are. And so these are just ordinary Christians, but they're supernatural beings. They're trophies of God's grace. They lived in a place that had one of the wonders of the ancient world, but it was centered around their religion, the, the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. And people came from miles around, really all around the inhabited world, to worship at this, the, this pagan temple, this temple of a goddess, and they made, the Ephesians made lots of money from this religion. But God had chosen some of them out to become Christians. And when Paul came and preached the gospel, they heard and they repented and they believed. So they also were trophies of God's grace. No one, no one becomes a Christian apart from God's election and predestination and sovereign grace in Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. So every one of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of you, you are trophies of God's grace, and so am I. And we get to celebrate that for all eternity, that God be the glory for our salvation. So the greeting is appropriate. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to talk about grace, because grace is at the core of all of this, at the center of all of this. What is grace? Well, there are a lot of definitions that are somewhat helpful, but I think they're partial and therefore a little bit weak. I would just say grace is the settled determination in the heart of Almighty God to do us infinite good who deserved infinite wrath. 
That kind of covers everything as far as it's something in God's heart. And out of that determination in his heart, grace, out of that flows everything that we need for salvation. Now, the implication of verse 2 is that we need more things. (laughs) Grace needs to keep coming to us. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace to you. And so we are dependent on grace. We must have more grace. And it needs to keep coming. And so this epistle... Ephesians is a, is a conduit, a pipeline of grace to you. So are all the epistles. So is all the Bible. So is every good worship service, every good sermon. These are just conduits of grace. And God is sustaining your souls by grace until you're finally in heaven. And he also says peace to you. So grace to you and peace. We have in Christ, justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. It's a settled status of peace and it'll never end. God will never be at war with us. Or are we at war with God? That's done. But then there's a, an experience or a feeling of peacefulness. And I think that's what's in view here. That you would have a heart at rest and at peace in your salvation. And that God would minister a peace that transcends all understanding. And it would guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4. That's, there's a, a ministry of peace as you read Ephesians. And it comes to you from God the Father. God the Father is the source of every blessing. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. And the Lord Jesus Christ. He the mediator by which all grace and peace come. And apart from Christ, you have no good thing. So that's the greeting. Now let's look at God's purpose in election. Verse 3. And that is worship. Worship. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us. In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul begins with worship. Praise be to God. He begins this epistle with worship. You should begin everything with worship. Begin every day with worship. Just get up out of bed in the morning and say praise be to God. Just praise be to God for everything. For the praise of his glory. We've seen that again and again. Saw it in our overview last week. He does everything for the praise of his glory. And so God created us. To worship him. He redeems us to worship him. He is keeping us in Christ. And is doing all these good things. So that we will worship him. It's the purpose of all of it. So blessed be. Praise be God. May God be honored. May God be esteemed. May he be spoken well of. May he get all the praise and honor he deserves. For our salvation. May he be happy and satisfied in his work. Heaven is just a world of praise. I mean, just filled with praise, isn't it? Got archangels and angels and, and spirits of righteous men and women made perfect. And they're just praising God all the time. And notice who's praised here. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a specifically Christian designation of God. Specifically Christian. It's specifically Jesus-centered here. It's Trinitarian, ultimately, I think. God is not merely the creator of the ends of the earth. He is that. It's a biblical way of talking. Uh, He's not uh, merely the sustainer of all living things. He is that. Or the king and judge of all the earth. He is that. These are suitable ways to address God. Uh, Nor is he merely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is that. The God of the Jews, certainly. But here... He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we Christians worship. We believe it's one and the same God as all those appellations, all the things we've just, all the same God. It's always been the same God. 
But this is the God the Father. The God who had said about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Who loves his son, Jesus. So he's specifically zeroing in on God the Father as the source of every blessing you have in your life. Specifically here the spiritual ones and we'll talk about that. But God the Father, the source of all of these blessings. Now it is so easy for us as Christians to be maybe a bit, I don't know how to say it, standoffish with God the Father? Afraid of him? Perhaps you didn't have a good relationship with your own biological father or you've never seen fatherhood done well? There are various reasons for this. Or maybe we just read about the terrors of the law and the judgment and wrath of God and people are afraid. But Jesus came specifically to reveal the Father to us. And he says so sweetly and beautifully in John 16, he said, in that day you will ask the Father in my name. I'm not saying I'll ask the Father on your behalf. You'll ask him. No, the Father himself loves you. In other words, the Father loves you like I love you. So if you're a Christian today, you are infinitely, perfectly, and eternally loved by your heavenly Father. He cherishes you. He loves you. He is the highest authority in the universe. Think about that. There is no higher than God. The highest authority. And he loves you. He set his love on you in Christ. It's mind-blowing. And he is your father by adoption. We'll talk more about that next week, God willing. And we will spend eternity worshiping God the Father. This is our destiny. This is our heavenly occupation. The new heavens and the new earth will be staggeringly beautiful. Think about it. It's going to be free from all decay and free from all corruption, free from death. It'll be exactly the world God intended when he created the heavens and the earth, only it'll be glorified. And it'll be radiant with the glory of God. And we will see the glory of God. And we will delight in it. Every blade of grass and every flower in the new heaven and new earth, every soaring mountain and lush valley, Every glistening river and placid pond, all of these things will glow with the glory of God the Father. And you'll see it and you'll give him praise and honor. You'll worship him. So just, if I can just step aside and give you an application right now, let's just worship God the Father all the time by the Spirit. Let's just see in this present sin-corrupted world still so much evidence of the glory of God. And let's just be people of worship. Let's just live for the praise of God's glory and just say, this is such a marvelous world. This is my Father's world. And everything around me tells me of His glory and His power. We should be far more filled with worship. Secondly, let's see God's generosity in our election with every spiritual blessing coming to us in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God the Father has blessed us with specific blessings, packets of grace, packages of grace given to us. The lavish grace of God the Father towards sinners like us should just take our breath away. Think about the father of the prodigal son who comes running down to the end of the, of the, the, the driveway. They didn't have driveways. What am I thinking? Anyway, that's how I picture him. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. I look on each of those things, the robe and the ring and the sandals and the calf and the feast and all that, just packets of blessing, packets of grace. And so it is with our salvation. God has so much grace to give us. Grace upon grace, it says in John chapter 1. 
And here it says, every spiritual blessing has been given to us. Every spiritual blessing. How do I understand that? Well, it's not true that God gives us every spiritual blessing there is. But it is true that he gives us every spiritual blessing we need. Every spiritual blessing that you need to make it out of Satan's dark kingdom through this wicked world and beyond judgment day into the new heaven and new earth, all of those blessings that you need are supplied for you in Christ. Everything. 2 Peter 1.3 puts it this way, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Life would be eternal life, godliness being sanctification, everything you need. Same thing. So we are fully equipped for the Christian life. We're fully equipped for judgment day and fully equipped for eternity in this statement. Now, he mentions here spiritual blessings. Notice that Paul is not here focusing on what we would call common grace blessings. And those things God does lavish on his enemies and friends alike. He causes his rain to, uh, to, to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the, and the wicked alike. And those blessings are significant. Blessings of food and clothing and shelter and a good job, and family, and fun times, and hobbies, and all those earthly pleasures, all the honey that there is in this world, that God does give those things. They do come from God, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. No, he's talking here about spiritual blessings, which he then enumerates, which Ashok laid out so beautifully, one after the other, and they just, they come tumbling out, and even this list is not exhaustive. But in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, he has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. And he has given us all wisdom so that we understand his eternal purpose in all of this. And he's given us the gospel blessing. And when we heard it, we believed in repentance. So repentance and faith are part of that. And then the sealing of the Spirit is a blessing. All of these blessings coming on us one after the other. God the Father gave us all of these things. Now, these spiritual blessings, he tells us, are in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. We really need to meditate on this more. These blessings must be received spiritually. They must be received by faith or you will not get them. So we can't see them. We don't have physical tokens of them. But they come to us by faith. And we need, we Christians need to live much more in the heavenly realms than we are right now. I mean, I think about all the afflictions and the struggles and trials that people go through in life. You get a diagnosis of cancer, or maybe you lose your job, or you lose a loved one, or can't have a child, you know, you're, you're trying to get pregnant but can't do it, or you've had some reversals if you're trying to adopt and that's not working, you can't find a spouse, you're single and yearn for a spouse, people are lonely, or maybe lost their house to fire or flood or some kind of disaster, or somebody's seriously injured in a car accident or some other type of affliction, uh, these folks may be tempted to question God's love. And wonder why they've not been blessed. But the blessings that we all most need are these. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And we've been given those. We need to realize how infinitely rich we are in Jesus. We tend to focus on physical blessings in the earthly realms. And so much of our effort and our prayers and our drive and our minds go toward physical blessings in the earthly realms. And we need to meditate much more on these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. Now, there are false teachers now that are teaching something known as the prosperity gospel. 
And they're getting their congregations week after week to focus almost entirely on physical blessings in the earthly realms. Quoting here Joel Osteen. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. End quote. Um, According to Osteen, God wants to pour out his immeasurable favor on human creatures and we have to reorder our thinking. You must rid yourselves of that small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessings. Start anticipating promotion and supernatural increase. You must conceive it in your heart before you can receive it. And if you can conceive it in your heart, you will receive it. Well, what do we say in response to Christian martyrs? What do we say in response to brothers and sisters in Christ who live in third world countries who have what we would consider appalling poverty their whole lives but are happy in their spiritual blessings in Christ? What do you say to them? What do you say to those that are thrown overboard by Muslims because they're Christians or beheaded? What do you say to house church pastors who are afflicted by communist governments and who haven't been out in years? How does that prosperity gospel fit with that? I picture in my mind Paul and Silas with backs bleeding and incarcerated for preaching the gospel, singing praise songs to Jesus because of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that's theirs in Christ Jesus, and no one can take that from them. Moth and rust cannot destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. So away with the false teaching, the prosperity gospel, and let's meditate on every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, it's easy to kind of rag on on the prosperity gospel, but... At the same time, isn't some of our depression and discouragement and dejectedness in the Christian life caused because we're meditating too much on earthly blessings in the physical realms? So we need to repent too and ask that God would lift our hearts. Fourthly, God's timing of our our election, chosen before the world began, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So the fact of our election is plainly asserted here. God chose us. Now the Greek word chose here is used in many places to refer to the elect or the chosen ones. To choose means to select one or a few out of a larger group. That's how we use the word. This is one of the most valuable and yet one of the most difficult doctrines in the Christian faith. The idea of election is taught in many places in the New Testament. Jesus said it in Matthew 24, 31. At the time of the second coming, he will send out his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus used the word elect. Paul said the elect were constantly on his mind when he did missions and evangelism. So they should be on our minds. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So evangelism here in the triangle and missions to unreached people group is a search for the elect. That's who we're looking for. I've said before, I wish they had the E in the forehead, but they don't. So you just go and preach the gospel to everyone. And the ones that respond vigorously, we know at least in their case, they are elect. That's how it works. So it says, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, listen, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. Truth being the gospel. So the gospel came to Thessalonica. They heard the gospel, believed, repented, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, began to live the Christian life. We know you're elect. 
That's how it works. Peter wrote his epistle to the elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what is election? Well, it's God choosing from among the mass of humanity those who would believe in Jesus Christ, who would be his children. That's what election is. The elect are the focus of everything God did in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Now, this election is the ground of everything that follows, including predestination. It's because of the election that everything else comes. Now, you'd say, well, how does my own choosing fit into that? How do I reconcile my choosing with God's choosing? Well, the way I tend to do that is by paraphrasing or using another verse to explain this idea. And that is in 1 John 4, 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. So it's not a reach to then say, we choose because he first chose us. And we do choose. We do choose to follow Christ. We're finally free to use our chooser mechanism for the thing it was made for, Jesus and God. And we choose as finally the work of Satan and the hardening of heart is removed and we can see things as they really are. And yes, we'll choose God and Christ then. So God's choice of us is the ground of our choice of Christ. But look at the timing of when this election happened. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Now, if this doesn't stretch your brain to breaking point, you haven't thought about it. Think again. All right, good. The circuit breakers are tripping all over. It's like, before the creation of the world, God chose us. Before God said, let there be light, he chose you by name. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it was, has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is infinite mystery. God says in Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore, in loving kindness, I have drawn you. You see, God sets his love on us by name. So you think about all the moments in history when Adam and Eve, when he formed them out of the dust of the earth, he was, if you're a Christian, he was loving you by name in his own mind while that was happening. He was loving you by name when he flooded the world and rescued Noah. As a matter of fact, you could say he rescued Noah in part so that he could rescue you. He was, he was thinking about you by name when he called Abram out of Ur of the, the Chaldees. He was thinking about you by name when he did all of that history of the Jewish nation, including the Exodus and all that. He was having a love relationship with you in his mind when all of that was happening. As a matter of fact, before your parents met, before your parents met, he was loving you by name. And I'll say later in Ephesians 1.11, that's why he brought your parents together. We'll get to all that. Um, but he was, he was loving you by name. And having a relationship with you in his heart and his mind. If this doesn't give you security, I don't know what will. If you're a Christian. Now, you may ask, on what basis were the elect chosen and others not? And you say, why ask that question? Well, why ask it? I think basically because there are one of two possible answers. Either God chose you before the creation of the world because he saw something that would eventually be in you some attribute or some action in you. And on that basis, he chose you, foreseen, because God knows the end from the beginning, which we don't deny. 
Or God chose you despite anything he saw in you, just in and of himself, by his own sovereign grace. The Bible teaches the second, not the first. How do we know that? Well, plainly from Romans 9, 11, and 12. Let me read these verses. These are key for understanding why God chooses. Why election? Romans 9, 11, and 12 says this. Speaking of Jacob and Esau. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older were served the younger. Now, you've got to just look at those words and say, first of all, sequencing means everything to that argument. Before, after. So, the fact of election, before they even exist, removes anything in the individual as the ground for election. Sequencing means everything. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about a miracle of Jesus, right? Think about sequencing. Let's think about Jesus asleep in the back of the boat in the midst of a storm. And the waves and the wind and all that, and they're going to drown. And Jesus continues sleeping through the whole thing. And then suddenly, while Jesus continues sleeping, the storm quickly abates. It just stops. And about ten minutes later, Jesus wakes up, stretches, and stands up and says, Peace be still. You're like, where was that ten minutes ago? I'm glad that the storm stopped, but we could have used some help. Would you call that a miracle? I would not call that a miracle. Sequencing is everything. It's that the storm is still going on and Jesus speaks and then it stops. That's a miracle. And so it is in Romans 9, 11, and 12. Sequencing is everything. Before we're created, God shows us. It has nothing to do with anything he sees in you. And if there is anything good in you, whether repentance, faith, good works, or any of those, he worked them in you to God be the glory. So our election is not based on foreseeing anything. Fifth, God's provision for our election is chosen in Christ, quickly. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. What does this mean, in him? It means you don't get anything except through the work of Christ. Every good thing you get, including your election, is blood-bought. So, when God chose you, he was thinking about the blood Jesus would shed for you. And you get nothing apart from that. This is stated again and again, and we'll see it again and again in Ephesians 1. So we'll just move on. Sixthly, what is God's intention in our election? Our holiness. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us to be pure from sin. That's the purpose, the ultimate purpose of our election. And so in justification, when you call on the name of Jesus for your salvation, and you say, I'm a sinner, please forgive me, And trusting in Jesus, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are made positionally holy in God's sight. Then in sanctification, by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, you are made progressively holy in His sight. And then at glorification, you will be instantaneously made actually and perfectly holy in His sight. This whole work has been a salvation from sin and all of its corruption and defilement. That's why God chose you. And so, therefore, holiness is very much the issue of our salvation. And you should not think of holiness as this austere fasting and wearing simple drab clothes without buttons. And, sorry, um, anyway, all of those, you know, that's what people tend to think of holiness. Like this, holiness. 
Holiness is the most beautiful, virtuous, attractive, joyful state possible for any being. It is the perfection of joy and beauty. That's what holiness is. It's loving righteousness and hating wickedness. That's what holiness is. Jonathan Edwards says this about holiness. Holiness appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, charming, serene, calm nature, which brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. It made the soul like a field or garden of God with all manner of pleasant flowers, all pleasant, delightful, and undisturbed, enjoying a sweet calm and the gently vivifying beams of the sun. The soul of a true Christian appeared to me like a a little white flower as we see in the spring of the years, low and humble in the ground, opening its bosom to receive the pleasant beams of the sun's glory, and then rejoicing, as it were, in a calm rapture, diffusing around it a sweet fragrancy. That's holiness. It's beautiful, fragrant, the exact opposite of all wickedness and corruption. That's what God chose you for, and that's what you will be someday. And that's what God is working in you day after day. Well, applications quickly. First, for us as we reach out with the gospel, let's make election the ground of our confidence in evangelism and missions. Amen? Let's, let's just say there are elect people at my work. There are elect people in my neighborhood. There are elect people in my dorm or in my classes. There are elect people here in the Triangle region that have not yet come to faith in Christ. Oh, God, make me an instrument of bringing them over from darkness to light. I want to be part of that work. Do you see how that will give us such confidence along with humility as we reach out with the gospel? Let's make election the ground of our confidence in reference to missions, unreached people groups. They are going to be reached because there must be elect there from that tribe, nation, language. So, if I can appeal to you who are non-Christian visitors here today, I can't tell you how glad we are that you're here. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are, but I'm glad you're here. You've heard the gospel today. You know enough. Jesus is God's son who died on the cross for sin. Trust in him. Don't, don't leave here unregenerate. Don't leave here lost. You say, well, what about election? How do I know? if You don't need to worry about that. Just come to Christ. Believe in the gospel. Then you and all of the people that know you will know you're elect. Just come and trust Christ. And as I've already mentioned, thirdly, let's be a people of praise and worship and thanksgiving. (laughs) Let's stop complaining and let's spend more time worshiping. The complaining, isn't it based on earthly things in the natural realm? I mean, that's why we complain. You've been given everything you need in the spiritual gifts and the heavenly realms in Christ. You're fully equipped. Praise Him and worship Him. Just worship him. Get up in the morning and say, I praise you, God, that you chose me by name before the creation of the world. I praise you, O God, that you sent Jesus to die for me. Fourthly, would you please ponder the mystery of election? Don't boot out or kick out or push the red eject button. The canopy goes off and the seat goes out and you're coasting down to the earth and you ejected. Don't do that. Go back to this and meditate on it. Go to Romans 9 and read verses 11 and 12. Ponder these things, not by works, but by him. That's the contrast. It's not not by works, but by faith. That's not what he says. Not by works, but by God. Ponder it. Ponder it. Don't shrink back from it. Fifthly, 
Focus in your daily conversation more than you ever have before on spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. Talk about them with your friends. Sixthly, yearn for holiness in daily life. Don't look on holiness as stark austerity, but look on it as delightful and beautiful. And finally, seventh, pray more than ever before for God's elect and unreached people groups to be reached with the gospel. Pray for FBC to be more involved in missions than we've ever been at any time in our history. Pray for a flowering of missions in this church. Close with me if you would in prayer. Father, we thank you for the meditation that we've had today in the deep topic of election. It's beyond our ability to comprehend how you could choose people by name before they're even born, before they do anything good or bad. But Lord, you have. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you would please give us a rich, full understanding of what we have in Christ and how Christ shed his blood that we might receive each blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.